what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host. For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. The title, the formal title of our program today is Becoming Indiana Jones, which is, of course, an exaggeration, but nevertheless, we're talking about uh, the transition to the professional world of archaeological practice. And we have talked about this topic in the past, uh, where archaeologists go once they've consumed this tremendous amount of education, what the general trajectory of a professional career is like, what kind of devotion one needs to practice archaeology and to actually succeed in the working world. And... uh, in a number of cases, we have done in surveys, we have interviewed professionals who have gone through the rites of passage in this profession and developed themselves into uh, functional and successful uh, practicing archaeologists. But today, it's uh, going to be a focus on a very special uh, career trajectory and one that's very personal to me because the gentleman we're interviewing today is someone whose career began in the same time and in the same place where my own did. And uh, my very special guest today is Dr. Stan Green, who is currently the Dean of the McMurray School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Monmouth University, where he is also Professor of Anthropology. Prior to that, Stan was the Dean of College of Arts and Sciences at Clarion University of Pennsylvania and Professor of Anthropology and Departmental Chair of the University of South Carolina. He holds a BA from the uh, State University of New York at Stony Brook and an MA and PhD in anthropology from the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. In his capacity as dean, Stan has uh, developed a program to engage the liberal arts and performing arts with career preparations for the 21st century. He has published over 30 major articles and co-edited two 
two major volumes on our own anthropology. The scholarship that Stan engages in includes diversity in careers in higher education, as well as specialties in archaeology, the application of geographic information systems, GIS, which we've talked about in the past and will continue to talk about going forward, and finally, the study of cultural history of baseball. Uh, Stan has directed major archaeological projects in South Carolina and Ireland, which is uh, one of his major focus, foci in terms of his regional expertise, and he has involved uh, and been involved with uh, dozens of undergraduates and graduate students from the United States, Britain, and Ireland. And uh, it is my very sincere pleasure to welcome Stan Green to the program. Stan, thanks so much for showing up. Thanks very much, Joe. It's a pleasure to talk to you as always. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, with great pleasure, and of course, as I indicated before, Stan and I found ourselves as undergraduates together at the State University of Stony Brook in 1971. We both graduated. We both followed this career. We took trajectories trajectories that were different, different and yet converged at various points in time. I don't think either one of us uh, would have anticipated where we are today professionally, uh, not to say that these are unexpectedly bad places. I I think just the opposite, but they do indicate the type of diversity and the type of uh, unusual courses that a professional track in archaeology and uh, anthropology can take. Um, as again, as I, I emphasized, I don't think we any one of us would have uh, anticipated that some 40 odd years down the road we would have been in the positions that we are today. Would you agree, Stan? I totally agree, and I don't know if I like the sound of 40 odd years, but I guess it's been that long. Yep. <laughs> so absolutely. So, Stan, please. Uh, Please reflect a little bit, if you will, on how your career track developed. And I, I would say right off the bat that Stan's career is, 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 first of all, it's a very, very successful career. And again, it's taken him to many places and through many roads. And, and Stan, just, just let us know how it worked and when you started out and, and, and how this moved along for you and what the major, uh, major breaks were for you and how you dealt with that. Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, for one thing, um, one of the great things, and I guess it's not so far from Indiana Jones in the sense that archaeology, although I'm sure, Joe, you've talked about how hard work it is, especially in the field, it takes you to some great places. So one of the things about archaeology that's great is you do get to travel, um, and you follow your passion around the world, if you will, and Joe certainly has. You've followed it even more than I have. Um, but I started out with an interest in anthropology in general, um, and I was interested in cultural differences, cultural, uh, the differences of different societies, how different societies did things. It was all eye-opening to a, a 19-year-old kid um, from Brooklyn, and um, I just fell in love with the area of anthropology and eventually um, became interested in archaeology. I don't know whether it was my interest in archaeology or the fact that uh, I met some professors who basically sort of mentored me into it. And I guess that's one of the things that um, when I think about my career, I often think about uh, the fact that I was lucky enough to be mentored by people. Some people took an interest in my education, and um, they kind of uh, they very much influenced um, where I was going. When I was at Stony Brook with Joe, we both studied North American, and I guess we studied uh, South American archaeology. Um, and I went on to graduate school uh, after that, and I was going to study North American archaeology. As it turned out, my advisor was uh, someone actually who is 
uh, was European and also had an interest in European archaeology. And he asked me, well, what was my real interest? Was I interested in where I studied or was what was my topic of interest? And my interest is, has long been uh, the relationship between people and their environment, the long-term kind of relationship. And that's the thing that archaeology is um, so good at, is looking at long-term relationships, long-term um, processes. And he said, well, if you're interested in that, what I would recommend you do is either go study in England or go study in Denmark, because those two areas are the strongest areas. They have the longest history in correlating um, human um, human prehistory and history and environmental prehistory and history. And so I went and studied, uh, ended up doing uh, my doctoral work in, in Denmark, and uh, that started my career, which was uh, basically European prehistory. Um, I was lucky to get a... Um, an academic position at the University of South Carolina, where although I didn't get to teach European archaeology too often, I taught mostly South Carolina archaeology. I taught a little bit of European, and it was always my passion and my interest to study, again, the environmental aspects. So that's a, a – so I don't know if you want me to continue on. I can take you all the way to present day, but that's how my, my archaeological um, career began and my, my teaching and my academic career began. But but you followed a trajectory that not many are following these days. I mean, you went basically from your undergraduate into into graduate school, didn't you? That's correct. Yeah, and yeah. I was lucky about that. I mean, er, you know, everything's in the timing. And uh, um, yeah, I just went directly to graduate school and was able to manage to survive on a on a TA ship. I mean, the economics are part of the issue. Um, it's partly economics. Um, you know, I didn't leave with much of a school loan, and uh, because you know, I don't know what it was, but going to Stony Brook was relatively inexpensive back then. Um, and um, yeah, I just, I, I've, I guess, I've always been that kind of person. I didn't take any gap years. I kind of just moved along. Partly, I was again mentored into that. And um, when I took my position at the University of South Carolina, it was in 1976. Quite honestly, that really is about when academia, the whole economic landscape, the whole jobs landscape changed in academia because um, at that point, um, that la that was really in the last year where there were a lot of quite a few positions, although there weren't that many in '76. Um, and then after that, since then, quite honestly, the last almost 40 years, academia has really um, uh, the job market, I should say, in academia has really shut down a lot. So I I kind of snuck in. Um, I got a, uh, I went down to the University of South Carolina actually on a one year visiting position to take care to take the place of somebody who had just retired or resigned. And um, I ended up staying down there 18 years, uh, just as a, by way of career, a New York kid, uh, you know, and I was always saying, well, I'll, I'll go do anything, but I don't know that I want to live in the South. I've never lived in the South. It seemed the most foreign part of the country to me, but I ended up spending 18 years at, at USC um, and helped build a very good um, uh, archaeological program down there, and it's one of the things I'm most proud of is that so many of my students from USC have gone on in the areas of archaeology. Most of them not in the academic realm, most of them in the professional realm, um, working for state agencies, consulting firms, and so forth, but very, very successful. And um, so uh, you just want, you, when you think about your, your past, you just, you, you wonder how, um, you know, one little turn, one little change could have changed everything, but... Um, so I did go kind of straight through. A lot of people don't do that now, and it's actually, I have three kids, and none of them really did that 
So they're all doing kind of going to college and then taking time off and so forth. And I, I think that that uh, even uh, I know we have a large listenership amongst the graduate student community across the country and even across the world. And I try to explain to them exactly what you've been saying, that it, it's, it's a much different landscape right now for professional archaeology generally. Like you said, uh, you stuck in under the wire there and you uh, obviously achieved a, a, a tremendous amount of success academically. And yet sometime in the mid-90s, that changed for you? What happened and why did you decide to, uh, to move on? Right. Well, yeah, and, uh, and you're talking about my shift over to administration. I yes. taught for about 18 years, um, and quite honestly, I was feeling a couple of things. One is I was feeling a bit tired of teaching, um, and um, I really didn't feel like I was, I was doing it. It was my best service to students. Uh, actually, my, my favorite part of teaching was taking students to archaeological field schools, and that, was, that continued on until the end. Um, but then I decided, you know, I, I, I decided to try some administration. I had been a department chair and had been worked on field schools, and I saw the possibility of developing anthropology and archaeology at other universities as, a, as something I'd be interested in doing. And I also was interested, I was at the University of South Carolina, of course, a big research institution, um, and I was really interested in moving into an area which more focused on undergraduates um, and maybe master's level students and not so much of a focus on doctoral students um, because that's really where, you know, that was where the, the, that's where the core of American higher education is, and I feel like that's, that, I felt like I, that's where I really wanted to try to, you know, make my difference, so to speak. So um, I, so I, start, I just put myself on a job market. It took about two years, uh, at least two years, maybe three years. I can't even remember anymore. Uh, two or three years and finally um, landed a dean's job. And um, I really enjoy doing that because uh, the reason being that, as an anth- first of all, as an anthropologist and archaeologist, we have a great advantage. This is maybe a message that a takeaway people could have. Um, Anthropologists and archaeologists, especially archaeologists, I would say, work across disciplines more than pretty much any other discipline. And people always say, is it an art or a science? It's really everything. When you're an archaeologist, you can relate to everything from art history to physics. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with artifacts and you're dealing with radiocarbon dating and everything in between. So uh, I found that a great, it just, it just was a real sweet spot for me. I, I felt like I could just kind of, not that I was an expert in everything, but I, knew, I was an informed user, at least in everything, and I was pretty expert in certain things. I mean, as an archaeologist, there aren't many people in the social sciences who understand the science behind, uh, you know, radiocarbon dating or other kinds of uh, radiometric dating. At the same time, I also have great appreciation for art and art history. Um, of course, because of the, we study, we study a, lot, a lot of the evidence we study is art, or, or um, you know, artifacts, ceramics, whatever, uh, style and form and so forth, which is what art historians will study. So it really, it wasn't anything I actually pre-planned, but I guess I just followed my instincts, and they really worked out well. So at the University of South Carolina, I actually did develop a, a master's level archaeology program, and I think it succeeded quite well, and then I moved on and uh, to Clarion University in Pennsylvania, where I worked with the anthropologists there. And we didn't form a master's program, but we reformed, if you will, the undergraduate program and, and, and really enhanced that. And then at Monmouth, we 
um, when I came 10 years ago here, um, we actually just three years ago started our master's program, and I'm really proud of that, and that's really doing well. Um, and uh, the students are becoming professional archaeologists by taking, and professional anthropologists, but mostly of them are archaeologists with a master's level uh, um, degree, and that's one of the things that's changed in the landscape. I think since you and I started, Joe, is which is that the master's level is a really strong credential, at least from my perspective, in terms of moving into the professional world. And we're um, going to discuss that at, at greater length when we after we uh, take these few breaks and sure. uh, a few messages. And we'll be right back. Uh, keep your dial tuned, and uh, we'll we'll be back shortly. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to Our Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. When you think of museums, what comes to mind? Is it ancient history? Rotating displays of collections? Are they nice places to visit? Or are they essential to our cities and society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert. We'll discuss what the attraction is and historical importance of museums and what they contribute to the economic makeup of our cities and country. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Can you 
And this is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back again with a, another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And what I'm trying to do today is I have brought back a very longtime friend and colleague, someone who I was educated with, and, and not to really push, push the focus too much on us, but as, certainly as archaeologists, I think we represent a certain demographic in the profession, and I, I think we are probably the last generation of archaeologists who were f basically structured and trained, if you will, to follow an academic track. But in so, uh, in so maturing as we have, uh, we are now in a point where the profession has undergone a dynamic change, very, very significant change, certainly in, in the way that it's moving professionally and also in the way that it has affected academia in very, very many ways. And I think Stan's, in Stan's case in particular, Stan has sort of been at the crossroads of some of the very major transitions in, in archaeology. And as we discussed earlier, he spent 18 years as an academic um, at the University of South Carolina, gradually shifting his focus into restructuring educational programming and uh, sort of getting a sense of the times, if you will, as an archaeologist, where the focus needed to be placed on diversifying uh, the, the objectives of the profession because they were being changed anyway. And so, Stan, why don't you take us back to the mid-90s when you made that decision that um, you were going to shift a little bit, take on different responsibilities, move your own career into the deanship realm, and uh, concentrate a focus on, on undergraduate and, and master's level training. Why don't you tell us about that? Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, the, uh, what 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 was happening, I guess, and, you know, reflecting on it, I think I was aware of it, but I also was, you know, basically almost instinctively following it. I guess if you're teaching for 18 years, you do get a sense of what's going on with students and where they're going and so forth, um, was that um, the uh, the liberal arts in general um, were becoming um, sort of uh, demonized in a sense. And my view had always been, and I had sort of made the assumption that everybody would agree with me, and of course that wasn't true, that in fact the liberal arts in general were the best way for undergraduates to get to get educated, and that, that, that really the world was their oyster if they were if they were well if they were well educated in in liberal arts and writing and creative thinking and 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 in presenting things and so forth and analysis, and even more than that, anthropology, which often gets marginalized in the public realm because people always think anthropology apologists are, you know, basically people who just study stones and bones, as I've been told by some professionals, not an anthropologist, but others. Um, anthropology is especially good at educating students. First of all, if that's their passion, then people should people should always follow their passion in education. But the anthropology is was not a luxury. And I had a good friend who actually was dismissed, did, was not given a tenure slot because the, their dean said anthropology was a luxury. Anthropology is really one of the best ways to become educated at the undergraduate level and to become professionalized at the master's level. And that's sort of a, I, it's not really a, a total break, but it's sort of a continuum. But I think that on undergraduate level, um, the notion that you're, you're a college student can either just be a student who just learns things, kind of general knowledge, or prepares for life is really a false choice. It does both, and anthropology does it especially well. Um, just by way of specific example, one of the things 
that people out in the in the world either hiring anthropologists or just hiring people to work in corporations or NGOs or social whatever social services or education they hire the person not the major and one of the things they want is somebody who can who works hard can work as a team person and also can think clearly and we Joe and I both know you know Joe I mean we're our, in archaeology you work really hard and you work as part of a team and those are things that people don't don't necessarily think of um, and a lot of education I saw as you know very individualized that's the way American education is you kind of you study yourself you don't copy of course you don't want to copy things but you know even study groups or group work and all those things are seen as kind of problematic whereas that's the way the real world works right so I see anthropology as tremendous a tremendous uh, background for for students and that's why I, moving into a dean's position I put myself in positions where I could help further programs in anthropology and the related areas toward um, educating students and professionalizing them. So that was really the transition. And I guess you're right, it sort of followed the, the trajectory of the field in, in many ways as well. So in your own uh, development, obviously, you saw, and, and again, you know, these things are, seem to be symbiotic. I mean, uh, we obviously have our fingers uh, on the pulse of the profession, and I think you're absolutely right. Somewhere in the mid-90s, uh, uh, let's just say that the light bulb went off, and we said, wait a minute, we can no longer do or train our uh, students and uh, young professionals in the way that we were trained because the world has opened up very, very differently. Um, cultural heritage, cultural resource management right. all of a sudden became the overarching uh, roof under which our profession was going to grow. And then you're there at the forefront and um, what are you telling students and how has your influence on students changed as you shifted to a more undergraduate-friendly uh, university and as you became in a sense more powerful and, and, and provided more direction to the programs when you moved on how did that work together right well the, I think you know in thinking about it the key things and I've done this in each of the programs I've started in each of the three different schools but especially Clarion and Monmouth um, the key was a focus on the analytical aspects of archaeology and the fieldwork aspects. And what I found was, in both cases, that they were weak. Um, anthropology and archaeology were basically, you took courses on topics and time periods. And you didn't really focus on the methods, on the an analysis and the creative analysis, um, the, you know, the whole scientific process of collecting information and making you good use of it, and then the field work. And that's, that's something I've, oh, I, you know, it's, that's, that was a complete shift for me because I don't know about you, Joe, but at, at University of Massachusetts, field work was not something that was emphasized. Theory was emphasized, and that's what the, the whole shift is. I mean, theory is important, but for what students today need is they need application. They need to be able to, whether it's archaeological information or other kinds, they need to be able to, to deal with data and information. And they also, they, the, the fieldwork experience, which gives them experience, first of all, in understanding how you collect information and also how hard it is, you know, the real work, get developing a real work ethic and, um, and working and a real work ethic in teams. So it was, in a sense, a kind of a, a complete flip for me because I wasn't trained that way. 
But as I moved through my career, I realized that's really what we needed to be educating students. They didn't need more me because I was trained, like you said, we were part of a generation that was put out there, kind of part of the new archaeology theory and all that, which I enjoy very much. But in terms of uh, educating undergraduates and um, getting them prepared for life after college and master's students who are basically become could become professional anthropologists and archaeologists, they needed that focus on method, on field work, um, application, and those kinds of things. So actually, ironically, at South Carolina, I ended up, even though I went in there as a theoretical archaeologist, I ended up teaching statistics for 18 years, almost, maybe 17. I don't know if I taught it the first year I was there. And that became a kind of a core, too. I mean, statistics, um, analyzing it, numbers, numeracy or whatever, is really a, a, a tremendous skill that most archaeologists will deal with. I'll say one more thing. The other thing is that also came in a time when I became interested in a little earlier than that, actually toward the end of my South Carolina career and geographic information systems as that methodology was developing. And that is a tremendous uh, tremendously important methodology in so many different fields and archaeology really led the way in that. It, it certainly did and, and this goes to a whole lot of conflicts and a lot of uh, professional issues that we raise in our community more and more, and, and, and you and I, I think, are very much on the same trajectory here. Uh, I think it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, and, and I certainly want to develop this as we go forward. But to put this in very, very stark perspective, Stan, um, we studied at a time when you took a course called Method and Theory in Archaeology. Right. And uh, from what you're saying, and, and, and certainly from what I'm thinking, method and theory, it's, it's wonderful to think that they're a unifying force, but as this world of archaeology becomes increasingly more uh, professional, more applied, and requires people to do, shall we say, in one perspective, rather than to necessarily to think the great thoughts, as it were, which is what right. we do in theory. Do you see a shift where method is, in a sense, taking priority over theory? How do we, how do we deal with that? Yeah, well, that's a very good question, and that's a difficult one, too. Uh, at, at South Carolina, when I was, uh, and I, I, I um, uh, I guess this is part of the transition. I, I supervised many master's theses. I mean, I was among, there were four archaeologists, I believe, three or four, depending on the time. And, um, you know, I did a lot of supervision. And I always stress to, to the students, you do need to understand anthropology to be an arch, you know, to do this field work or to do this research, I should say. Um, but it's not, the, 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 the anthropological theory is not the end. That's sort of a, a, a foundation. And, it's not a world in itself, basically, but so you, there is a balance. You, you don't want to go into something without um, a conceptual, actually, framework, and that's what, to me, that's what theory is all about, and that's what taking, you know, the history of anthropology is always one of my favorite courses. In a sense, that's one of the best ways of teaching it. If you teach it as a history course, history of the field, people get an idea of the different conceptual frameworks and the way people deal with archaeological problems, but the method is really much more important. Um, that's where the skills and competencies are really grounded. And that's where fieldwork right. does such a great job, because fieldwork will literally ground you, I guess, pun intended. And so there is a shift there. Um, and um, 
And I guess if you go on, even if you go on for doctoral work, I think still method and the skills and competencies are going to be so important because in most cases you're not, unless you're going into teaching, you're not going to be going into, um, you're going to be going into a situation where you are going to be applying a professional, you know, your professional skills. And we're going to get back with Stan Green on this very fascinating topic, method theory, and how our careers sort of are, are factored and, and influenced by uh, the consideration of what weight is put on what particular aspect of, of the overall archaeological package. We'll be back in a few seconds. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. And we're back. This is Joe Schildenrein with my special guest, Dr. Stan Green, who is uh, a dean at, at Monmouth University. And uh, Stan and I, as I had indicated on several occasions previously, grew up in this profession together, same place, same field. And uh, we're sort of uh, a bunch of aging professionals who are trying to sort of uh, put a perspective on where the profession is going based on our collective experiences and our uh, not so insignificant influence on, on how this profession is moving. Um, Stan, we were talking about the changing focus, if you will, 
in many programs on method and theory and that um, my own perspective on this is that in methodological applications our methodological perspectives are so critical, not just for archaeology, where we know that the job market is not that great, but certainly the type of methodological uh, approaches and, and the hands-on types of perspectives uh, that you absorb when you're an archaeologist are applicable in so many fields. So even when we're training post-undergraduate students, if they don't end up in archaeology with things like GIS and remote sensing technologies, they can apply their skills in a variety of different professions. And we know how important that is, and we also know that a lot of the methodological emphasis is on the master's level. And you and I have talked uh, about getting um, internship programs uh, evolving uh, between industry and the student world, which is something that would have been considered foreign and alien maybe 20, 30 years ago. Why don't you give me a little perspective on the internship programs and why method is so important that you uh, specifically know how to apply these various skills that are used in archaeology and, and how you can uh, put that to work when you're actually training for the work world. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think, uh, again, anthropology has this, to use this, this maybe almost cliche or a baseball cliche, a real sweet spot with regard to methodology. Um, GIS is a great example. And I, you know, I, I co-authored a book in 1990 on GIS and archaeology. Archaeology was way ahead. But now if you look at so many areas, um, for example, here at Monmouth, we have we, the, the, the Marine Biology Program, uh, Homeland Security Program, the Health Sciences Program, Epidemiology, all those things rely on understanding um, behavior over space, spatial methodologies, GIS. I, I tell students, and not everybody can do it because it's not, you know, it's not a... Uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult methodology in some ways to learn, and if you don't think that way, maybe it's not your cup of tea, but if you can even have two courses in GIS when you're an undergraduate or even a graduate student, it's a tremendous hook um, for getting a, pro a degree, I mean, for getting a job. Um, in archaeology especially, we have a lot of students who work with Monmouth County here in, in, in uh, New Jersey. There is a Monmouth, um, Monmouth there is a countywide GIS program. Uh, I think it's a, a state agency. And students work there, um, get jobs there, or internships there. Um, but there's so many, um, again, teamwork skills, analytic, analytical methods, skills, and so forth that you learn in archaeology. That uh, I, one of the things I've been involved with. Um, again, I'm always, I'm, I, no matter what I do, I, I want to say this. No matter what I do, I always present myself as an archaeologist. And but then I have to retrain people immediately to say, you know, an archaeologist is much more than what you think, um, because they think of an archaeologist as Indiana Jones. Um, and yes, we do that kind of stuff, but we do so much more. But um, the uh, I'm working now with groups uh, called the um, Association of Colleges and Employers, and these are groups I've, I've talked to a New Jersey group, and I'm probably going to talk to the national group, and also the the um, national group for um, college in, uh, internships and co-ops. These are groups that work toward helping students connect with the careers, um, and. The, one of the main ways you do that, one of the in 
some ways the simplest way, which, as you mentioned, Joe, we never even thought about, was to basically integrate an internship, uh, working in the real world in some position, into your education. And so it used to be that, you know, internships were very rare. Now they're not only not rare, they're not a luxury. And not only that, I was actually this uh, just, just this morning at a meeting where somebody said, you know, one internship's not enough. You need two internships. Um, and basically for two reasons. One is because uh, it's a mutual thing when you go out and work in the world. If you work for an archaeological consulting firm or a state agency or or a clinic, you know, um, uh, you you learn whether or not that's where that's the kind of work you want to do. And the other thing is, of course, you get your foot in the door. And it's absolutely necessary to do that now, as a both at the undergraduate and undergraduate level. So we we really, especially in archaeology, again, we're ahead of the game in archaeology. Most people think of us well, archaeology is the study of old things. Well, I think really, ironically, archaeology really leads the way. Um, if you're an undergraduate or a graduate student, to many many things because we're really on the cutting edge in many ways. And um, so it that's the way to get out. To, to you, that's the way to link. The academic world, you know, your educational world with the real world. Um, and uh, so educating students as undergraduates or graduate students, it's a, we're not just there to teach them things. We're there to prepare them and allow them to follow their passions and allow, the, allow them to follow their talents so they can do a better job than we're doing in whatever we are doing. So, uh, so Stan- the programs are, 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 are essential. So, so let me ask you, having been... Uh, through the gamut and making a transition that I don't think, unless I'm awfully mistaken, that there are a lot of uh, tenured f- full-time professors like you you have been that make the change into deanships, make the change into um, a position in the university where you sort of have to watch out for the longer-term plans that the universities can can potentially supply the students with, the long-term sort of programs that really make uh, going to college a very relevant part of the training for uh, future employment. How do you see people in our profession, anthropologists, archaeologists, are they getting into this? Are they understanding that the world has changed and that it's, it's, it's time for anthropologists and archaeologists to provide a perspective on real-world challenges from the college experience? Uh, well, yes, yes and no. I mean, yes, they, a lot of them are now, and I, uh, you know, I can only speak from – well, I can speak more broadly, but especially from the places I've been um, – Archaeology professors are no different than any other professor in most cases. Still, a lot of them are trained in, you know, kind of academic ways. The newest, the newest generation now, we've, you know, the ones that we've hired, say, in the last four or five years, and at the, and Monmouth, we have people from sort of an older generation and the new generation. The newest generation is really tuned in on this. Um, our youngest archaeologist, for example, he's, Totally, he's totally method-oriented, although he's well-grounded in anthropology. Um, and he comes from the University of Florida, which is a pretty tra- used to have a pretty traditional anthropology program, archaeology program. But he's, what he's doing right now is he's doing oral histories. He's doing virtual 
uh, recreation of archaeological sites. Now, this might sound a little bit, you know, obscure, but these things can be applied in lots of ways. For example, he's the head of a major study on oral histories of Hurricane Sandy that hit right in our area last year, a year ago. So he's, he's pulling together using his skills and methods. He's gotten a grant, and he's involving our students in basically collecting oral histories, which has always been a, a part of archaeological work, and basically putting together a narrative and also a planning document with regard to um, dealing with Sandy, people that are still suffering as a result of it, and also preparing for the next Sandy. And so that's a great example. And he's a new generation archaeologist. He's, got, he's a recently minted PhD, but his his um, training involved a lot of method. I mean, he knows how to do every. He's he's key. I don't. I you know his his use of social media and his use of GIS and his use of remote sensing and virtual reality. All that stuff integrated into an anthropological archaeological framework. I think is incredibly powerful. And so um, we have new generations of archaeologists coming out doing that, um, and we have to, um, at the undergraduate level, prepare our students. In fact, you know, moving that direction. So, um, you know, when I started, I, I've been doing actually preaching this this issue of career development for a long time, probably a couple of decades, really. But in the last ten years, I've really been focusing on it, and there's still some resistance between traditional academics and and they don't want to be involved in job preparation. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about life preparation. And, um, again, archaeology is a tremendous sweet spot. That's the thing that I, people are always amazed because when they see me talk about these topics, and I say I'm an archaeologist, they want me to talk about, well, what was the greatest thing you ever found? And I can course, talk, yeah. talk about that, but that's not really what I'm interested in. <laughs> But you're seeing you're seeing a movement uh, amongst the younger generation of archaeologists that looks beyond just getting into the publication of of uh, let's just call them esoteric articles that right. are for use for your coterie or your own cadre of researchers wherever you work and right. applying it to a world which has changed significantly certainly since we were undergraduates and right. uh, it's moving in a direction where uh, the focus on practicality uh, hireability employability right. and mastering specific specific skills that are applicable to a real world scenario are becoming increasingly more important we'll be back with uh, our last segment with our very special guest uh, dr stan green uh, from Monmouth University right after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. 
you are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. Uh, this is Joe Shulden, Ryan, with a, another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. My guest today is uh, Dr. Stan Green, who uh, is now a dean at Monmouth University, and we have been discussing for this past uh, 40 minutes uh, the changing directions of archaeology and the fact that the flexibility and the type of versatility that we have in our training equips us to with with skills that allow us to apply our skills in a variety of different realms of the employable world if you if you will uh, archaeology as we have said many times on the uh, leaders to this show is an esoteric field in some cases becoming a little bit less so as we become part of the regulatory process and become becoming part of the natural and historical resources world if you will but certainly it's 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 a uh, a training uh, professional training that one gets that allows you and allows the individual to uh, develop mastery over a tremendous number of skills that are applicable in a variety of different types of venues. And uh, during the break, Stan and I were talking about uh, the need to inform actually other members of the university community of the flexibility and the type of skills that um, students trained in anthropology and just anthropology generally apply to working venues. So, Stan, why don't you tell us a little bit about your efforts to uh, lobby, if you will, or, or talk to people in the university community about anthropology and its potential for higher ability, if you will, or training students going down the road? Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, lobby is probably a good term for it. Uh, as we were discussing, uh, it's one thing to, uh, on the academic side, to understand the skills and actually, you know, make it explicit to students so they know they're learning things. Because part of the issue is they don't really know that, you know, when you do a research project, you're actually learning some really important skills that are very, very easy, very, can be generalized quite easily. But the other thing is, like, one of the things I'm working with now as a dean is working with the career services side of the university. And this is a whole other kind of bureaucracy that one deals with at universities. And I have to explain to them, and, I, and I'm 
you know, I'm used to it, um, you know, basically what anthropology is, because to them, anthropology is obscure and esoteric and so forth, but it's not. And I have talked to them about how the kinds of skills and competencies, when I talk about anthropology in terms of skills and competencies, they love it. Then they understand, because they're trying to help students apply their education toward developing careers. Um, But the natural bridge between anthropology and career services doesn't necessarily exist. Um, for, uh, for example, here at Monmouth, we have career fairs, and they always break off the humanities and social sciences and the different groups into, like, a separate from the business students and the science students. And I, say, and I tell them over and over, I don't want to break them off. You're marginalizing our students. In fact, anthropology students, as I said toward the beginning of this program, study everything from art to physics. And they have skills and methodological skills and competencies, writing skills, presentation skills, analysis skills, statistical skills that can bring them anywhere. And so uh, they're not, you know, anthropology in a sense has been obscure, but only um, almost, you know, basically that obscurity has really been in the, a part of the way university, the way universities divide the world up. And uh, one of the, I guess I'll, what I'll say is, um, when I, when I talk to students and I advise students and they're going for a job interview or I'm talking to them about going to job interviews, I always tell them, um, for God's sakes, don't tell them you're an anthropology major. Right. Okay, if it comes right. up, bring, tell them. Don't tell them you're an anthropology major because then they'll stereotype you. Tell them what you've done. Tell them what you're interested in. Tell them what you can do. So That'll how do you break you out of that? How do you break out of that compartmentalization mentality that basically pigeonholes you and sort of puts you at a deficit when you're going right. to an interview? How do you deal with that? Well, you need champions, and I guess I'm one of those. Um, you, need, you, you need champions to basically advise you, and uh, I, this is the thing I've been doing now is really putting my emphasis my, and my time and effort in this. Um, Wake Forest University is, is, has forwarded an entire kind of program in this. They call it Rethinking Success, and it all focuses on the liberal arts in general, and anthropology is very central to that. And I work closely with the person who down there um, who actually um, has, been, has been gaining some national attention in terms of making this case. But still, even yesterday's or today's New York Times, I can't remember if it was today's or yesterday's, was talking about the humanities and social sciences not being very important anymore. And that's dead wrong. It's absolutely dead wrong. And one one study I was just looking at just came out. uh, There's a great book called um, World-Class Learners, and it shows that... um, the lesson about you know the well American students is that we don't do so well on standardized tests really has another side to it, and there's been studies showing that in fact liberal arts majors um, who may not do as well on the standardized tests, um, but they do really much better on the on the tests of entrepreneurial tests and creativity tests. Now those are standardized, but they're not like math and reading. In other words, they're sure. more creative. Um, and that's what we need. We need creative people. Entrepreneurship doesn't just mean starting your own business. It means turning act- ideas into actions, being able to apply your knowledge. I and think you're right. is great about that. 
I think you're right about that. And I think, quite frankly, you know, the, even though we're down on many aspects of American education, I think the uh, the liberal perspective on American education ultimately is a very healthy one and one that allows for this type of creativity. It allows for, you know, the country to have produced the apples of the world and the right. social networking in the world because they have the ability to think outside the box. Absolutely. And I think that 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 right now we have to go a step backward and say, wait, the hard sciences are really important, but using sort of the creative perspective and integrating the hard sciences into that and mastering them as much as possible and mastering both elements of this, that's the secret to success. And uh, I guess that's a, a message that you have promoted for a very long time. So in these last few minutes, why don't you sort of give us your, uh, your perspective on where this is going and, and, and what the future is going to look like as we, as we hopefully change our venues and approaches. Right. Well, I do think that higher education is in for a big change. Um, and I think you were saying earlier, it has, things are changing. You just decide whether you jump on board with it. Um, the, the, the whole way people are, students are learning now, they're becoming much more autodidactic. They learn by themselves. There's all this other stuff. There's podcasts. There's Khan, Khan Academy. There's, there are TED Talks. Students are watching this stuff. Um, and they're learning, and even these large classes that school students that schools are putting out, these so-called MOOCs, which I can't remember what it stands for, but the big classes that Harvard and Stanford are putting out, those are those are things we need to embrace and work them into our educational system. For one thing, I guess the bottom line is we need to be teaching students how to learn the way they will be learning in their real life. We, right. you know, you and I sat through a lot of lectures. And I remember, I probably sat through more than you did, Joe, but I'm telling stories here. But, <laughs> but in any case, we sat We're not going here. <laughs> that's not the way you work. That's not how you learn your job. That's, that's not right. how you develop your career, by listening to somebody lecture you. Basically, you learn on the job. And the, uh, the anthropology, and that's why, that's why um, teaching field schools was most, the most important part of my teaching experience, because... I empowered students to learn on their own. They had to learn on their own at some point. You can guide them to a certain extent, but at some point they have to tra they have to stick that trowel in the ground. And they're either going to do it right or they're going to shovel shave a skull or something, but they're going to do it and they're going to learn from it. And that's what we need to be doing. So the um this whole package of basically preparing for life, doing internships, you know, learning um through various, you know, the various kinds of venues um, inside and outside the classroom is what's going to best prepare our students. And for for um, for countries or universities that just stick to kind of the one and a quarter hour lecture as the means for educating, that's going to fall by the wayside. I mean, students do vote by their feet. They vote with their feet. And we have strong enrollment in anthropology. It's one of the biggest majors for our teachers for the kids who want to be teachers, they study anthropology, which to me is tremendous um, because I can't think of a better field for students to take when they teach elementary school than to, to be, have a good background in anthropology and archaeology. And on um, that note, we're going to have to, I'm afraid, sorry to do this, but we have to bring our program to a close. Um, I want to express my heartfelt thanks to Stan Green for appearing on the program and providing what's really going to be a sort of a pioneering approach, I hope, to anthropology, archaeology, and the future of our profession. And Stan, thanks so much for appearing on the program, and I'm sure we're going to have you here once again uh, to follow up on this. Thanks it's again. My uh, pleasure.
Thank you, Stan, and we will be with you again next week. Thank you, and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.